it's, it's the first Sunday of the month, and on the first Sunday of every month, I share some of my own discipleship intentions for the upcoming month, and I don't do this, and I, I want to make sure I'm clear on this, I don't do this to kind of say, well, discipleship is about taking your life and then adding more things and creating new obligations. I use this framework, heart, soul, mind, and strength, relationships, prayer, and worship, growing in my biblical knowledge, and serving as a way to remind myself that the call to Jesus is a holistic call for every part of my life. I don't divide my life into spiritual and unspiritual parts. I look at each dimension of my life, from finances to relationships to recreation, and think, how do I bring honor and glory to God? Where is God leading me to grow in my relationship with him? And that's what this is about. It's about discipleship. It's about learning to grow in your relationship with Jesus and serve him faithfully. And so I like to mix things up every month and have kind of different themes or different emphases because like any relationship, if you just did the same thing with this person for every day for two or three months, the relationship would kind of stagnate. All good growing relationships are experimenting with new ways to interact with each other and doing fun things with each other. So in the area of relationships, I'm really pushing myself this month to talk it out. I've just become aware through a lot of work of how often I keep things in my own head and try and think through my problems instead of sharing them with God and with Heather and key people in my life. In the area of soul, I'm doing some Enneagram work and thinking through it, especially as kind of the ministry year kicks off sort of in September. What is mine to do this year, God? What are you calling me to specifically focus on? In the area of mind, doing a lot of research around Christianity and Buddhism, and kind of specifically looking at the book of Ecclesiastes, because I think there's a lot of interesting ways to um, bridge um, people who are drawn to Buddhism into the Christian story via the book of Ecclesiastes. So I'm doing some work there. And then in the area of strength, uh, I just thought this might be a good month for me to serve secretly. And what I mean by that is to serve in such a way that no one else in my life knows about it. My wife doesn't know about it, my kids, no one in my church. I'm just serving. I'm looking for an opportunity to serve in secret. Uh, and, And Jesus said, that's a good practice to do every once in a while, to make sure that you're not doing things to be seen by other people or to receive reward from other people. Because if you serve in secret, if you give in secret, then there's only one person who can see that and reward you, and that is God your Father. And so that's something that I want to have my eyes open for this month. Okay, like I said, it's really good to be back. I can't remember the last time I've gone four weeks without preaching. It's been easily over a decade, maybe when I first started teaching. I don't know if I like it. It was a long four weeks to be away. What I did like, though, was Maren's message last week and her opening introduction into the world of memes. Um, I wanted to share some of my favorite memes this morning because uh, Maren's brought this to our attention and she's brought us up on internet meme culture. And I have been tracking with certain memes that have come to mean a lot to me over uh, the last year particularly. There's actually an entire subgroup of memes based just around Kermit the Frog. And I honestly have no idea where they came from. But I just, they speak to my heart. So here's the first one. This is one of my favorite uh, Kermit memes. I think about this one often. I love that. And my second favorite Kermit meme, and this is a little bit more of my life, is this one. We've all been there. Oh, love my Kermit memes. They're so good. Now, I don't know if, like Marin, I'm going to be able to reweave these memes into today's message. That's a tall order. But that shouldn't stop us from turning to Mark chapter 12. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Mark chapter 12. 
on your Bible or electronic device. New Testament, Mark comes pretty early. Matthew, Mark. And then look for the big numbers. Their chapters, little numbers, are verses. Go to chapter 12, verses 13 to 17. I'm going to read it. It will be on the screen to follow along if you don't have a Bible. Later then, sorry, later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. And they came to him and they said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you don't pay attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. So they brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is on this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus says, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. First of all, some context. Where are we in the Jesus story? We are in Holy Week, the final week of Jesus' life. Mark's gospel starts to focus on the last week of Jesus' life in chapter 11. That means the first 10 chapters of Mark's gospel cover about three years of ministry, and the final six cover a final week and a little bit. And so Mark's narrative has shifted gears from really, really fast, very high level, major highlights, ripping through the timeline, and now when he gets to Jesus' final week, he slows everything down. And he says, we're going to take a third of my account of Jesus' life and just focus on the last week. And that should give us a clue that Mark, via the Holy Spirit, is trying to communicate to us that all of Jesus' life has been building to this week. And so what's going on here, we don't want to move fast through. We want to slow down and fully understand how this week builds to the crescendo of the cross and ultimately the resurrection. It's Passover week in Jerusalem. It's a once a year celebration that draws Jews from all over the empire. So Jerusalem is swollen with four or five times more people than it would normally have. And today's account likely happened on the Tuesday of the Passion Week. Verse 13, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. Who are they? They are the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, kind of like the Jewish Supreme Court, the arbiters of religious law over the Jewish people. They send two groups, the Pharisees and the Herodians. For some, okay, we're going into a little bit of history this morning, so break up the smelling salts. I know some of you hear history, eyes glaze over, but it actually is going to be pretty neat once all the pieces begin to move together. Who are the Pharisees? Who are the Herodians? Really quickly, the Pharisees, we might think of as kind of like the real Bible-believing Jews. We've got to get back to Torah. We have to learn to obey God, and not just God's written revelation in the Torah, in the Old Testament, but also the oral tradition from the great rabbis of history. We need to, as precisely as we can, drill down into what it means to honor the Sabbath and to worship God alone and to do all these things. And then if we're faithful, if we're really faithful, God will deliver us out of the hands of Rome. So they were kind of like the original, let's get back to the Bible, let's get back to our traditions and really focus on obedience, strict religious obedience. The Herodians were a very different um, group. They they weren't really a religious group. They were much more of a political party. The Herodians, named after Herod, they were people who said, you know what, Rome's here. 
I don't mind if my Jewish brothers and sisters want to be all about God and stuff, but let's, let's be honest about stuff. Rome's in charge. So what we should do is give up on this idea that God's going to be our king and let's just be practical. Rome is powerful. They have an army. Let's just cozy up to them and work with the system because we can accrue a lot of power if we just go along with Rome's narrative and if we just kind of slide into being partners with them. So this group is really about kind of kissing up to Rome, but in the process kind of turning their back on this Jewish tradition of this is the land that God has given us and we're to be God's people. And the Herodians are almost like, well, you can't take this thing too seriously. Let's just kind of calm down and let's just kind of play the game and enjoy the fruits of being under the greatest civilization that the world has ever known, which is Rome. Now, as you might imagine, normally Pharisees, who are all about obedience to God's law, and Herodians, who are all about sidelining God's law in order to appeal to Rome, those are not usually friendly towards each other. But the gospel tells us that they have a common enemy, and that enemy is Jesus. And the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so these groups are willing to work together. They're sent by the Sanhedrin to trap Jesus. The Pharisees don't like Jesus because of his theological claims that he is God. He's making it very clear that he believes that he is the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, come in human form to redeem and to restore Israel. And the Pharisees are like, uh, no, we don't accept that. So they have a problem with Jesus from a religious point of view. The Herodians have a problem with Jesus from a political point of view. Because as we're going to find out, there's been a lot of messiahs that have cropped up in the decades preceding Jesus coming on the scene. And some of those messiahs have come from a region called Galilee. And Galilee's been known to be a hotbed of insurrection. And Rome's had to put down some of these revolts. And so the Herodians are like, we don't want this Jesus causing trouble for us, giving, the, giving us Herodians and other Jews a bad name and making Rome suspicious of us. So they come together in order to trap Jesus because they have the same end game. They want Jesus eliminated. They want him killed. And so they devise this plan to trap Jesus. Verse 14, they come to Jesus and they say, teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others. You pay no attention to who they are. You teach the word of God, the way of God in accordance with truth. So right away, they're buttering Jesus up. They're kind of flattering him. I was doing some research this week and I came across a great quote about why flattery is a sin. And it was this. It says, flattery is the mirror sin to gossip. Gossip is saying some, something behind someone's back that you'd never say to their face. Flattery is saying something to someone's face that you'd never say behind their back. I thought that was good. So these guys are flattering Jesus. They're acting like they really respect Jesus, that they're deferring to his authority. But really, it's totally fake. It's totally disingenuous. And they reveal that in this question that they ask. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay it or shouldn't we? Real clear question, black and white answer. There's a tax, should we pay it or not? Now this question is a real, real doozy. And at first pass, it might not strike us like that because we don't necessarily understand the context. We don't see why this question would be controversial. We might not even understand why it would be dangerous, but it is actually very dangerous to address this question 
in the first century context. It is an actual trap. And I guarantee you, when they place this question before Jesus, anybody in earshot goes quiet as a mouse. And the tension level rises dramatically and quickly. By the time they get to the end of this question, within three seconds, everything is quiet, everyone has locked their eyes on Jesus, and the anxiety around where is he going to go with this is just, is just at fever pitch on, people's, on the insides of people. And this is why. When Jesus was a little boy, somewhere between he would have been maybe 8 to 12, the regions of Judea, Samaria, and Idumea became a Roman province. So we have a map here. Samaria, Judea, and then Idumea, they become a Roman province. They get um, grafted into the Roman Empire. When they do, they come under the rule of a procurator or a governor. When that happens, a head tax or census tax or poll tax, depending on your translation, it could go either of those three ways, is instituted. It costs one day's wage. It's a silver denarius. And any subject people who aren't Roman in those areas now have to once a year pay the Caesar tax or the poll tax. Now, this is a real problem. Well, actually, this is when this tax gets instituted, remember when Jesus, when um, Mary and Joseph, uh, Joseph has to leave Nazareth and go to Bethlehem to register for the census? That's, this is why. You register to the census to get a head count of everybody so that they can institute the census tax. So this is kind of an earlier allusion earlier in the Gospels, and now we're seeing where this has gone. Now, when you pay this tax, it didn't go into the Roman, uh, Roman Empire operating budget. It didn't go into the big pool of just where taxes go. This tax was paid directly to the emperor. Whoever the emperor was, he got this tax. And it was because the silver that these coins were minted on belonged to the emperor. So they were his coins, so you had to give back to him what was his. But in paying the tax, really what you were acknowledging was who ruled over you. So when you looked at that, denari- that silver denarius and you pay that head tax once a year, it was a reminder that you're under the authority of the emperor. You are a subjugated people. Don't forget that. You have freedom, but it's bounded. You are under the authority of a master, and that master is Caesar. So you can imagine for a God-fearing Jew, this tax, when it gets instituted, doesn't go over very well. And within a few months, there's a violent revolt. This, again, happened when Jesus was probably a boy. And it's led by a figure named Judas the Galilean. If you have Bible trivia, you're going to remember that name actually comes up in the Bible. It's referenced in Acts 5, verses 37. But it's also referenced by the uh, Jewish Roman historian uh, Josephus. He talks about this revolt that Judas said, we are not going to pay this tax because we understand what's trying to be done here. Rome is trying to remind us that we are a subjugated people. No, we are the free people of God, and we will not live under the authority of any master other than God. They rally, and Rome crushes them violently. There's a few odds and end revolts that happen in the decades that follow, but whenever those revolts against this tax come up, Rome doubles down on violent response. And they teach 
the Jewish revolutionaries, whoever they are, don't even play this game with us. You are our subjected people. Now, this movement that Judas the Galilean inspires eventually morphs to become the movement that we would know or is referred to in Scripture as uh, the Zealots. These are the people whose battle cry is, no God but Yahweh, and they are willing to use violent means to overthrow the Roman government. They even had Scizari, who were uh, assassins, who would go into the crowds, look for Roman officials, and stab them behind the back, and then leave And the zealots were Jews who said, that's totally valid because we're supposed to be ruling this land. This is supposed to be a theocracy under God. And if these pagan Romans won't acknowledge that, then we are allowed to overthrow them by any means possible because it's justified because we are God's people. But whenever the zealots rise up to any degree, Rome crushes them. Now there's something else about the tax and specifically the coin that you have to understand that's another dimension to why it was so despised by first century Jews. And that is what it looked like. So if you put the picture up here, this is an actual picture of a silver denarius. There's there's, uh, some that exist in museums today. They're fairly uh, plentiful. On one side, in Jesus' time, Tiberius Caesar was Caesar. And so in Jesus' time, it's a picture of Tiberius Caesar, and it says, Tiberius Caesar, son of divine Augustus, in reference to Augustus Caesar, the first Caesar to be divinized, meaning to be uh, labeled a god. And on the back, it's a picture of Tiberius sitting on the Roman throne that says Pontificus Maximus. Does anyone know what that means? It's Latin for high priest, or highest priest. By the first century, Rome had created what's now been called the imperial cult. There was lots of different uh, religions within the empire, but Rome said one of the ways that you can kind of dominate people, not just physically, but mentally and psychologically, is by creating an imperial cult where you worship the emperor. The emperor becomes like a god. And you can, you're free to worship whoever you want. Rome said you can worship whoever you want. We're very tolerant and inclusive. But in addition to whatever gods you worship, you must worship Caesar as Kyrios, as Lord. Set up temples. They had huge games to honor Caesar. And so in Jesus' day... There's a tax that is to be paid by Jews as a subject people, a tax which contained a graven image. What's the first first two commandments, the Ten Commandments? You shall have no other gods before me. Do not make a graven image of anything in the heavens above or the earth below. Do not worship it. You shall make no idols. This coin represents a complete violation of both of those commandments. So Jewish people in the first century saw this coin and and they said, this is a graven image. This is idolatry. We will not participate in this. And so most Jews in the first century wouldn't even carry this coin. And what they did is they began minting their own coins, copper coins that had no images on them, and they paid the tax through the copper coins. So they wouldn't have to even handle a silver denarius. And so these coins weren't just about reminding you of your political subjugation. Don't never forget who your master is. It's Rome. It's Caesar. It was also about trying to control and influence who people thought deserved their ultimate allegiance. Caesar is your Lord. Caesar is your Savior. Caesar is the one who by his might and power secures the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. 
You owe him your ultimate allegiance. You can believe in whatever fairy tales you want. Just come back to the fact that Caesar is Lord and he is the high priest who builds a bridge between the gods and humankind. And as such, he deserves your penultimate allegiance. Now that you know that context, think about the trap that is being set for Jesus. This poll tax, Jesus, this head tax, should we give it to Caesar or not? Should we pay it or not? Or shouldn't we? Yes or no? What is it? If Jesus says, yes, we should pay it, what's the danger? What's the danger if Jesus says, you should pay the tax? Well, it's going to look like a complete betrayal in the eyes of the Jewish crowds who put their faith and trust in him. They're going to say, what a total sellout. When, when things got tough, when he came right up against the power of Rome, oh yeah, no, totally, I, I'm, yeah, Rome, all the way. It's going to look like a total cop-out and a total abdication of religious leadership and responsibility. So there's no way of winning to go that direction. And if Jesus says, no, don't pay the tax, what happens? Rome, the Pharisees, and the Herodians are going to report back to the Sanhedrin and say, he said we shouldn't pay taxes. That's sedition. He should be tried and executed and killed. And if you read ahead in the gospel, you're going to find out one of the charges against Jesus is they said he told us, he, he was encouraging the people not to pay taxes, which is a total lie. But in Rome, that was a big deal because it wasn't just about not paying taxes. It was about not acknowledging who ultimately rules over you. Who is your master? So Jesus is in a really tight spot. He knows that it's not a sincere question, that it is a trap. He says, why are you trying to trap me? And he says, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. That's awesome. Number one, he doesn't have one on him. And neither do his disciples. That's a good question. Uh, Can someone bring me a denarius? Whoever steps forward with that denarius as a Jew has identified themselves as someone who isn't, hasn't taken seriously the command to have no other gods before me and to not participate in anything, any kind of idolatry which involves a grave, graven image. So Jesus is already shifting the conversation. And then he says, whose image is this on the coin and what is inscribed? He doesn't answer the question directly. He answers their question with another question. And they're probably like, Jesus, please don't pretend like you don't know whose image is on this coin. We all know whose image is on this coin. It's Caesar. And maybe they gave the coin to Jesus. And this is the part where you kind of see Jesus turning the coin over and he flips it back to them and he says, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Microphones hadn't been invented at this point in history. Had they been, someone would have dropped the mic at this moment. This is a mic drop moment. It says, they were amazed. And I think when they says they, it doesn't mean the Pharisees and the Herodians, it means everybody in earshot. Everybody is utterly amazed, stunned at Jesus' reply. It's amazing. He says, well, 
Caesar's image is on this coin, so I guess that belongs to him. So just give it back to him. And the word that he used, they ask him, should we pay the tax? Should we give the money to Caesar? Jesus uses a different word. He uses the word apodidomai, which means to pay back, or some translations, to render. And it's the idea of giving it back to someone, like give back to this, return. um, You have something that is owed to someone else, so just return it to them. Jesus says, Caesar's image is on the coin. Return it to him. Render it to Caesar. Now, at this point, if there's no pause in, the, in, in that response, the Pharisees are like, ah, we got him. See, he's acknowledging we should pay our taxes. He's saying Caesar is the high priest. We can get him on grounds of uh, blasphemy and, idol- and idolatry. But Jesus continues. And he says, but apodidomai, render back, give back to God that which has God's image on it. You're a first century Jew, your light bulbs are going off because what has the image of God on it? Humans do. Genesis 1, 27, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. In his image, he created them. Human beings have the image of God on them. Jesus says, yeah, it looks like the image of Caesar's on this coin, so that belongs to him. But whose image is on you? Because who owns you and who you are required to give back to is determined by whose image is on you. See, there's so much brilliance here. Jesus is communicating, Caesar is owed what bears his image. If that's the coin, give it back to him. But God is owed what bears his image. And if that's you, then render your life to God. And that's a fancy way, and it's a very sophisticated, hyper-intelligent way of saying, pay the tax, but don't you dare give Caesar your allegiance. You pay the tax. It's a good thing to do, to pay taxes. But you belong to God. God is your master. Caesar is not your master. In fact, you are never to live as if another human being, whether they're in government, whether they're in a relationship, whether it's a friend, doesn't matter who it is, you are never to live as if another human being is your master, capital M, ever. You belong to God. You walk in that freedom. You can be subject to authority. You can respect authority. But you never give ultimate authority over to another human being because their image is not on you. God's image is on you. So render your life to him. You can respect authority, but never idolize it. Now, this is a text that I think it can be challenging to think through some of the practical ramifications. So I want to draw out three. The first one is very quick. Pay your taxes. It's pay your taxes. That is a legit interpretation. Christians should be people who pay their taxes. Jesus could have said, don't pay your taxes because it's going into some huge Um, empiric conglomerate. There's all kinds of negative things that that money's being used for. That's not your responsibility. Your responsibility is to be subject to authorities, give over your taxes. What they do with the money is their responsibility. That's on them. You should pay your taxes. Number two, this and other verses that we'll look at in a moment make it very clear that the agenda that Jesus is pushing, this kingdom of God hope, is not a political movement. The kingdom of God, Christianity, is not a political movement. And there are people 
who would like it to be. There are people who want to try and make the kingdom of God about political insurrection. Now, there's a lot to say here. I'm only going to say it briefly, and then if you want to go deeper into this, we can. But this is a real rabbit hole, and it's, it's supremely important, but there's just not enough time for it this morning. The kingdom of God and becoming a Christian following Jesus has political ramifications because you will live differently in the world according to different values and out of a different telos, purpose. But it's not a political movement, meaning the hope of the kingdom of God is not, could we get everybody in government to become Christians and then um, figure out a way to top-down legislate Christianity to the masses? Wouldn't that be a huge win? It wouldn't be a huge win. Historically, even when that's been tried, all you do is make fake Christians. The promise of the kingdom of God is that transformation will happen, but it will start with individuals rendering their lives to God. And if that happens for enough within a society, maybe somewhere between 8 to 12% of the population, the polis, the assembly, the politics of the region will shift because you have a critical mass of Christians living differently, not on Sunday morning for two hours, but Monday through Sunday in their spheres of responsibility. I believe Christians should be involved in politics. I believe that is a calling, but not from the perspective of we're trying to institute Christian government. Israel was to be the only nation that was ruled under God that was brought to heel in their rebellion after exile. And now the next time Jesus will rule and reign over a worldly government will be after he returns. And to then, we are under the authority of other governments who might be aligned to our values in some ways and often are not. But we don't waste our efforts in trying to make our governments or our rulers Christians. We love and serve Jesus where we are, be salt and light where we are, and the hope for the gospel is that individual lives are transformed which then transforms society. We're not about legislating the kingdom of God politically. In Romans 13, Paul drops this bomb on the early church, which is in alignment with what we've just read from Jesus. He says, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except by which God is established. The authorities exist, have been established by God. So therefore, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against God and what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For no ruler hold terror for, what, for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. So if you want to be fear, free from fear from the one in authority, do what is right and you will be commended. And he says, therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities. And this is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone that you, what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, revenue. If respect, respect. If honor, honor. And in 1 Peter 2, 13 to 17, Peter writes to the early church who are experiencing a fair amount of persecution at this point. Not as much as it's going to be when Nero comes on the scene, but still a lot. He says, submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers Fear God, honor the emperor. But this emperor is saying like he's divine, he's the son of a divine God and he's the high priest. Yeah, we know that's not true. But don't go on Facebook and slander the guy. Honor him, pray for him. That gets repeated throughout the New Testament. Pray for him, 
See, the default stance of a Christian towards an imperfect, non-Christian government is to strive to be the best citizen possible in order to bring honor to the name of Jesus. It doesn't mean we don't speak out against unjust laws, but we strive to, as best we can, honor and serve civilly in a way that people around us and the governing authorities say, you know what one of the most encouraging, transformative, good um, uh, kind of social pockets in our whole empire is? Is these followers of Jesus. They think, they have some really kooky ideas. They don't even believe I'm the great high priest. So they're pretty whacked theologically. But everywhere that they have influence within our society, things get better. They even feed and clothe and help people who don't belong to their own religious tribe. They're amazing. So that's the second application. The third, I think it's pretty personal for every one of us in the room. And it's a two-step question. Whose image is on you? And what inscription is on you? See, Jesus uses two words in his counter-question that should cut us to the heart. He uses the word icon to refer to image and epigraph, or epigraphe to refer to inscription. Whose image, whose icon is on the coin and whose epigraph is there. Now, image is clearly a reference to Genesis 1.27. God made humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. But a lot of commentators will say, when Jesus invokes the language of inscription or epigraphe, he is making a not-so-subtle allusion to the Shema of Israel. The Shema of Israel is the prayer of ultimate allegiance to Israel's God. To become a Jewish believer, you must recite the Shema in front of a Jewish community. And it's based on Deuteronomy 6. And it begins with the word Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. And that is translated, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone, or the Lord one. Deuteronomy 6, 4-9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your forehead. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. You belong to God. God is your king. Inscribe that truth onto every dimension of your life. Not just when you gather for them on Saturday, for us on Sunday, but as you come and go in all these places, inscribe that truth that the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He is the master. He is the authority. Now, if I were to ask you whose image is on you, you would probably say, I understand Genesis. Men and women are made in the image of God. But it's a different question to ask Okay, what is inscribed on you? What has been inscribed on you? This week I read a heartbreaking article about a child sex trafficking ring operating out of Oregon, targeting girls as young as eight, upwards of 14. And if the girls try to escape, what would happen is they bring the girls back, they beat them, and then they brand them with a symbol between their thumb and their finger 
And that's so that whenever the girl now is going about her life, as horrific as it is, she has something inscribed on her that reminds her not just whose she is, but what she is. Worthless, hopeless, unworthy, powerless, As life plays out, things get inscribed on us. Ideas that come to kind of summarize how we think about ourselves, they get inscribed in our mind. They get inscribed on our hearts. Failure. Addict. Divorcee. Loser. Hopeless. Unworthy. Sometimes we inscribe these things on ourselves. It's by our own doing. Often it's done to us. And we live seeing that inscription. It's like a tape. It plays in our heads again and again every day. So we might know that we're made in the image of God. But what's inscribed on us feels way closer. It feels like that's etched deeper. But here's the good news. In Jesus Christ, and I do believe only in and through Jesus, the image of God in us begins to be restored and he begins inscribing new truths over the lies that we've believed about ourselves. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, and we who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image, into his icon, with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And that means that as we take time to dive into Scripture, to reflect on the promises uh, fulfilled in and through Jesus, on the New Testament declarations of who we are in Christ, that what we will find is Jesus begins to inscribe new truths that reveal who we really are, and the lies can fall away. And now we can live under the master that we were meant to live under because he has placed the inscription new creation on us. He's placed the inscription redeemed on us. He's placed the inscription saint on us. Forgiven, beloved, gifted, victorious, adopted son, daughter. Jesus, the perfect image of the invisible God, became our high priest. And by allowing his image to be broken and marred by our sin so that the broken and marred image in us could be restored has now opened up a whole new way to live. And when you understand that good news, when you understand that gospel, the question should become, how do I render back? How do I apoditomai to someone who has given me that much? What could I possibly give back to him in light of what he has given me? And the answer is the only thing that he counted it worthy to die for, and that is your entire life. Let's pray. God, may we know this morning that we bear your image, but that in Christ, that broken, sinful image can be restored and redeemed. And it's a process, God. Second Corinthians says we are being transformed. It doesn't happen 
instantly, but as we look to Jesus, as we allow your spirit and your word to work in us and through us, you begin inscribing new truths. And I pray for those this morning here who have lived with false inscriptions and who have served false masters and who have served lies. And I pray that your truths would be inscribed over those lies and you would bring those lies to heal and take them away and replace them with your truth. And that we would render our lives to you, not just our spiritual lives, we would go into all of our life and say, how do I bring honor to Jesus? How do I give him back that which he's given me? Everything. Empower us by your spirit so that this prayer, so that we can follow through on this prayer, God, in your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to send you off with a benediction. As you go, family and friends of Nelson Covenant Church, may you render to God what is God's. May you experience the restoration of your image as you follow Jesus. And may the truth of who you are in Christ be inscribed deep in your soul over the lies that have held you back from God's liberating truth. May the love of God the Father, the grace of God the Son, and the fellowship of God the Holy Spirit be with you all this week. And all of God's people said, Amen. God bless. Have a great Sunday.